Welcome to this week's Property Matters on Dublin South FM, the show that brings global trends to an Irish audience. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your hosts for today are Brian Fox and myself, Carol Tallon. Due to ongoing COVID-19 restrictions, we are still recording remotely, so apologies for any poor sound quality. First up, Brian interviewed Councillor Dennis O'Callaghan, Labour representative for Kalini Shankill, about a proposed new development. It's just been announced that a board plan all has given the green light for development plan in the Shankill area. Both the Dunleary Rastown County Council and the Land Development Agency have welcomed a decision from the board and plan to start construction on the site early next year, pending a decision from local councillors. On the line now is Labour's Labour councillor Dennis O'Callaghan, who represents the Shankill Kalini area on Dunleary Rastown County Council. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, do you welcome the decision, Dennis? I do, yes. Um, it's probably long overdue. Uh, there's a shortage of um, housing in the uh, Dunleary-Ratdown area for social housing. We have a crisis in our housing lists. We have uh, homelessness uh, and we have an affordability uh, issue right across the county. So in that context, yes, I welcome the uh, decision yesterday by on board Tanala to grant permission for the 597 housing units on the uh, old uh, juvenile detention centre lands in Shankill. Mm, and how many of those then will be social housing? There will be 200 social housing units, uh, there will be uh, 306 cost rental units and there will be 91 affordable purchase uh, units uh, in the overall project, which, and, will be, which will be a phased project. And it's hoping to start the social housing units uh, in the initial phase. And when then, um, when, when will this be discussed then uh, at, at council level? Well, the next step now is that the Director of Housing will bring a further report uh, to the elected representatives. Uh, we won't be meeting now until September, but hopefully we will have a report at our council, uh, council meeting uh, in September where the Director will be outlining the next steps uh, to be taken by the Land Development Agency uh, in the project. I... Um, suspect that they will now go to procurement and move the thing along as quickly as is possible. I did say a final decision is pending from local councillors. Do you expect um, local councillors to give the go-ahead? I am. I'm optimistic enough. Now, there are concerns around, um, there were concerns uh, around uh, the um, the project uh, when the Land Development Agency uh, uh, came on board and in fact in April 2019 uh, the elected councillors um, uh, rejected the transfer of land at that time to the LDA because we didn't have enough information in relation to the cost rental proposals uh, which were quite uh, quite vague. You've got some I, reservations don't you about the land, the LDA the Land Development Agency? I, I have reservations but I I can be convinced uh, on it. We, I, I'm very conscious of the need for um, affordable houses to be built. I'm very conscious of the need for social houses uh, to be built. The cost rental element of it 
is based on what is called the Vienna model. Um, and Dunleer Rathdown, uh, as I understand it, is being piloted for cost rental uh, development. We have another scheme um, which has commenced up in the um, Sandy Ford area. And my understanding is that the lands at Dundrum, uh, the former Dundrum Central Mental Hospital, uh, the Land Development Agency will also be involved in the development. If you could just explain to listeners the the Vienna model. The the Vienna model is um, where uh, the uh, cost of... um, There's a wider range. uh, The difficulty I have in relation to the Vienna model that uh, there is a broader range of units available at reasonable cost to uh, to tenants. Here in Ireland, that isn't the case. The issue in Ireland is affordability. For example, uh, on the Shangana lands, a two-bed unit uh, at cost rental uh, will uh, be in the region of 1500 uh, per month. Now, that to me is not, um, is not um, Afford- affordable. Mm. In the Vienna model, you can get a one or two-bed a unit for under a a thousand euro a a month. There there is a broader variety of of cost rental. The cost rental model is based on the savings that will be made uh, in relation to the land and the development agency will be able to pass that on to um, to the occupant. I in see. the form of, of cheaper rent. Mm, okay. Uh, so um, your, your own reservations then, I'm sorry, um, there was sort of conflict, if my memory serves me right, in relation to the, to the Land Development Agency getting involved in this some months back. Am I, am I right about that? Well, the Land Development Agency um, came on board at a later stage. Yes, you're correct. Uh, it, the initial idea was that the council uh, themselves would directly Develop build out... It, yeah. uh, would direct build out right. uh, that's not that's not going to happen the land development agency are going to be involved and i think we have to work uh, to that uh, criteria now and make the best uh, deal uh, possible for especially in the area of affordability um now um it remains to be seen um um, how affordable the um, the affordable purchase dwellings will be, the 91 dwellings. The government, uh, the last government produced an affordable scheme but never implemented it. So we're in limbo with that one. We don't know what the present government will do. Their section in the programme for government in relation to delivering social housing is vague enough. Uh, that may well be firmed up on, but it appears to me to be more more of the same Mm. um, with this government as with the last government. Mm. Um, Again, the did, um, uh, they talk about affordability and sorry, Dennis. You're, you're, sorry, Dennis. You're hitting some of the um, keys on on your on your uh, phone. So cause just because it's coming through on, on, on okay. the. Um, so just to get back to um, the, the plans for Shankill for the moment, we we'll get back to the government in a moment. Um, do you expect when do you expect construction to begin then? Well, I'm, uh, the sooner the better, uh, quite frankly. Um, it's long overdue. I would hope that uh, by early next year that there would be um, the first phase of that project would commence. Certainly the first quarter of next year, I would hope to see um, to see boots on the ground on, on that site. It, it, it's long overdue and we can't afford uh, long delays uh, where, we have, um, where we have people waiting um, on housing. 
So you don't expect then to, uh, you expect the decisions made by local the councillors and government to be more or less uh, finished by the end of the year then and and um, machinery and, and cutting, well, cutting would, sod next early next year. I, I, I would hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that a report will come to us uh, in September. There will be an issue around, my understanding is that there will be, uh, we will have to dispose of some of the land to the LDA uh, in the form of a, what's called a Section 183. Uh, that's a reserve function of the elected councillors to do. Uh, I would hope that that will be, um, that will be done and we, we get on with the work. Yeah. Okay. Um, just you referred there to the, to the new government. We have a, a coalition government, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and, and the Greens with that uh, Minister for Housing now, um, Dara O'Brien. What, what's your own, what are your own thoughts now in relation to the, this changeover? Oh, well, look, I'm, I'm prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. We need a government. We were uh, nearly six months without a government, um, which wasn't helpful at all. Now that there is a government in, in, in place, it's only right to give them an opportunity to um, to get on with things and to legislate. Uh, I'm disappointed in on the, the section of the program for government in relation to uh, housing. While they talk about bold actions on housing, um, there, a lot of it is aspirational and there's no firm commitment as to how they will tackle the affordability issue because in the Dublin and greater greater Dublin area, the, the issue is affordability and my priority is for local people here in Shankill who have had to move out to uh, Wicklow and to Mead and to Kildare to be able to uh, afford uh, dwellings in their own county, rear their children in their own county, uh, and hopefully, uh, I'm hopeful that um, that this project will will commence that process of getting uh, our young people uh, back to uh, their own county. Well, the minister seems to be uh, in favour of the LDA because he says they have a crucially important. Uh, an increasing role in the delivery of more affordable homes. Uh, as such, the Programme for Government commits to establishing the LD on a statutory basis as a matter of urgency. Of course, that hasn't been done yet. That's correct. Uh, the LDA was set up back in September 2018 and uh, last year the Land Development Agency Bill came to the Oireachtas uh, in order to establish the LDA on what would be a, you know, a primary legislative uh, footing. Uh, that hasn't happened to date. Uh, the, the minister has said that he intends to urgently progress that to put them on a firm uh, statutory um, footing, and I and I welcome I welcome that. Uh, it would appear again from the section on the program for government that um, he will be empowering um, the local development agency to play a, le- a leading role along with the uh, thirty-one local authorities in um, in providing in providing social um, and affordable housing into the future. That would be my understanding of it. So you give me the impression that you're reasonably, reasonably and, and, and prepared to give the minister time to get um, get things moving in his department. Ah, yes. In, in, in fairness, look, I, I mean, it would be it would be reasonable. They're they're only in office a, a short while. But uh, having said that, um, he needs to hit the ground running. Yeah. Um, or if not, he will be held to account for him for um, um, his his actions. Uh, but hopefully. I'm hopeful that um, the the government will push and make uh, social housing and uh, affordable housing, housing a priority. 
uh, and get houses built. Okay, Dennis, we'll leave it there for now. That was Labour Councillor Dennis O'Callaghan, who represents the Kalani Shankill area on Dunleary Ratdown County Council. Thank you to Brian Fox and Councillor Dennis O'Callaghan, Labour representative for Kalani Shankill in Dunleary Rathdown, for that. We need to take a quick break now. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. I'm delighted to be joined now on the phone by John Power, uh, Managing Director at SGL Corporate Finance. John, thank you for being with us today. How are you keeping? Uh, Good, Carol. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, Good to hear from you again. Great. Well, the last time you joined us in studio, obviously the world has changed a lot um, and it, it's changed in every spectrum. So I'm quite sure corporate finance is no different there. So look, you might just give us an overview maybe as to some of the stuff you and your colleagues have been dealing with in the past kind of three or four months. Yeah, so um, SGL is a is a, a small corporate finance consultancy, but we, we tend to specialize in the SME sector. Uh, we specialize in, in terms of providing outsourced CFO services, uh, corporate finance support, uh, and general project finance. So we sit on uh, a number of, of panels and uh, and government agencies. We'd be a primary panelist with, with uh, Enterprise Ireland on their finance pillar. We do a lot of commercial evaluations uh, on a number of the supports and, and funding structures uh, that are offered through those agencies. So we've been uh, we've gotten a, a very very clear insight into what a lot of the issues are for particularly that that SME sector. Uh, which is so important to the Irish economy, um, and I, I, you know, within that sector is is you know you have many construction companies and and ancillary companies to the construction sector as well. So uh, you know, hopefully, I can bring a little bit of insight in there as well. Right, and look, let's kind of get specific on this. You know, what are you seeing right now? Like, what has what have been the the biggest changes maybe over the past three months? Well, f- first and foremost, I mean. I think the state has done a superb job in in the speed that it acted in terms of if we move away from the health space, uh, you know, and, you know, first of all, you know, lots of challenges in in terms of health space and people have had uh, uh, lots of um, uh, lots of their own challenges there. But if we move on to the economy, um, I, I think the government really acted really swiftly. The challenge now is that things like the pandemic unemployment sub, uh, support and more importantly, the temporary wage supplement have pretty much delayed some of the challenges that are coming down the line. So we've done numerous, numerous um, uh, engagements with with companies and, and nearly them all are not under severe cash flow difficulties from, uh, if we say, April to July. Um, but is that is that kind of because they're being supported by the state? Yes, absolutely. It has disguised a lot of the issues that we believe are coming down the line. So if we look at the companies we've dealt with, we're looking at cash flow difficulties beginning to hit those companies in Q4 and Q1 uh, of 2021. Um, and that's to a T, to, 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 to nearly every company we've dealt with. That's where we're seeing the peak cash requirements for companies is in that Q1 space next year. Um, so the, the temporary wage supplement has been brilliant. It has taken a lot of the, 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 the cash flow pressure away from companies, but it's still there. We need a rebounding economy. Um, and if we get it, it will, it will 
it will serve to support some of those difficulties that are coming down the line. But we need a big, if we don't get a recovery, we need a big stimulus. And, you know, I heard this morning that uh, the European, um, the heads of the European countries are on their fourth day of negotiation, hoping to sign off on the seven billion package for Ireland. Um, so, I mean, that's that's so required. The funding supports that are available to companies in Ireland are really, really strong but they're probably going to evolve over the next six months, I would imagine. Okay. When, you know, when you talk about something as widespread across so many, uh, across every sector of every industry, um, a big stimulus plan spread widely, is that really going to be the most helpful? You know, should we not have a situation where we prioritise certain industries or... Yeah, we, we... I, I agree with you. I mean, it's like here's the reality, Carol. I mean, COVID nineteen has probably only severely impacted twenty percent of the economy in terms of from a sector point of view. You, you know, food is still performing very well. You know, construction is beginning to get back on its feet, but the sectors that it has hit are the most uh, visible. They're the most optic, optically visible sectors in our economy. Hotels, hospitality, restaurants, bars, okay. um, tourism. They're very visible. So it makes it feel as if this has been probably more impactful than it in reality it is. Um, uh, but if we look at across sectors, we're looking at about 20, 25 percent of the economy being, being, uh, being severely impacted. And they're the sectors that absolutely need support particularly hospitality um and tourism they've been they've been decimated this year yeah yeah you see they they would seem to me like i i know retail has been lumped in there as one of the casualties as well however what i see is uh retail that failed to respond to trends that were already in play over the last number of years they're the they're the um elements that have been really badly impacted so for me i think that there's been a blurring of lines between cause and effect so um the effects have been worse but i don't know if some of the the biggest impacts have been caused by covid-19 i think they've maybe just been accelerated or been amplified by it so i that's where i see one of the huge distinctions mm-hmm. between say but- the likes of retail and the likes of tourism yeah retail is is an interesting case study in that retail has probably rebounded and is probably up uh, in terms of year to date. I've I've heard some retailers saying that they're up 30, 40 percent uh, year to date. Um, so really? they've responded. Yeah, retail has re- there's been a massive pent up demand because people were not spending on what they would normally spend on during the months of March, April, May, and even into June. So there was a pent up retail demand. Uh, and and a, and a very much a, a support local and shop local mentality. Mm-hmm. So local local retailers have probably seen a, a strong rebound. Um, uh, when you compare that to other sectors like retail, then you're you're hearing the big news stories about retail. You know, for some retailers, it might have been an opportunity to restructure where they were possibly intending to anyway. Yeah. You know? Well, I suppose I think that we should probably separate things like um, uh, groceries and particularly local convenience stores, because we know that they've actually had a heyday during lockdown. You know, yeah. it, it's been yeah. their best time. It's um, I, as actually one 
uh, corner shop owner told me it's been like Christmas every Christmas week, every week during the lockdown. So, you know, I, I think that they're almost a, a separate category when we're looking at retail. But um, in terms of, say, like looking at the likely impact this is going to have on commercial property, you know, uh, are we really looking at, I haven't heard those figures in terms of a retail rebound, particularly those who don't have an online offering, you know, to, to complement it. You know, like, you know, just before we came on air, you and I spoke very briefly about the commercial market, uh, the commercial property market in Ireland. Do you really think that retail can actually come back from this stronger? Uh, can retail come back from this stronger? It will come back from this different, I would think. Okay. Um, you know, so retail commercial space, um, you know, we're, we're going to come back from this. Uh, uh, people are saying radically different. I, I, I think we may overegg the pudding there, but I think we will come back from this uh, a different economy and a different society and how we how we do things. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly online retail has exploded. Um, but again, you said it earlier, Carol, those those retailers that had an online offering have just maximized that. We've seen some, you know, uh, technology developments that will help smaller retailers come out. Uh, and, and that's been welcome and that will continue to evolve. But retail, look, there's always going to be a, a requirement for retail. And, and you know, the hardware, if we come back to, you know, the commercial property and, 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 and the property sector, but the hardware, the hardware companies, the, you know, without mentioning any names, but we all know the ones we're talking about, they've had quite a successful period as well. Uh, if we look at other sectors within there, uh, paint manufacturers, you cannot get paint uh, yeah. fast enough at the moment. Um, so yeah, there are the, sectors of the economy that are performing really well. Yeah. And actually, by the way, just I, I think it might be helpful for our audience here to just put your your uh, insights now into perspective or, or into some uh, context here. So yeah. SGL, you know, just you might just um, I know you've explained this to us before on the show, but you might just <laughs> uh, for the benefit of uh, of new members of our audience, just explain the work that SGL Corporate Finance, what the work is. So what we do is we primarily will support the SME sector. Um, but an awful lot of the work we do is on behalf of many of the state agencies where we will undertake uh, you know, project finance pieces where we will support companies in, in constructing a credible uh, business plan that's supported by a, a very much so tried and tested uh, financial plan that backs up what their, what their business plan is saying. That's a heavy part of what we do. We provide outsourced chief financial officer services to many of those companies. We also are the commercial assessors for many of the, the state um, uh, funding supports that are out there, many of which are coming via Enterprise Ireland. So we'll do a lot of the commercial assessments on those on behalf of Enterprise Ireland. And then we sit on the primary panel uh, that's in there within the the, the finance pillar uh, of uh, Enterprise Ireland supports. So we cover a wide variety of of uh, of bases within uh, the the SME funding and finance landscape. Okay, and because you're looking at businesses from across a wide uh, range of sectors and industries, which yeah. is important for context here. So when you talk about this problem that we're effectively rolling uh, down to, you know, uh, Q1 next year, 
you know, what can we do about that? And is this something that we need to target on an industry specific basis? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of this, a lot of the problems I see coming down the line, Carol, are surrounding number one, cash and working capital. So, and I put this into real context in terms of examples. So you have a lot of companies there who had a very, very strong 2019. And on the basis of that, we're gearing up for a very strong 2020, legitimately. So a lot of money would have went into uh, whether it was expansion, uh, premises improvement, or even stock. So you have a lot of companies that would have uh, would have purchased advanced stock, and now all of their working capital is now stuck within their stock element that they cannot they cannot liquidate. They, it's 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 stuck in stock. So in terms of their physical cash. Uh, they're holding on to much less cash. Now, they're burning cash in the intervening, intervening period. The temporary wage supplement has slowed that cash burn, but they are still burning cash. Uh, so when we get to you know the end, of, the end of this year, as I say, Q4 and Q1, that cash problem is going to manifest itself. That combined with cash hoarding of companies, where companies are not paying their creditors. Okay, so you have lots of small companies who are struggling to get paid and as a result are reluctant to pay somebody else. So you've got a an almost a blockage mm-hmm. in the flow of capital that's moving around the SME sector. So those two factors are are pushing the problem further and further down the down the line to Q4 and Q1, and that's where it's going to manifest itself, where companies are going to need liquidity to unblock. Uh, uh, that that blockage that's in the system, and that's where I see the liquidity requirement, particularly if it's targeted on a sector by sector basis. Uh, I think that that's where the real assistance is going to be. Yeah, and uh, look again at the top of the show, you you spoke about you know perhaps the state intervention by way of a stimulus plan that's needed, but that that should surely be the almost. Um, the plan B or the fallback option? Like what should businesses be doing now or what's within their control right now? So, and and I know we're going to move on to this, but, you know, our funding, our funding partners uh, in the economy have a big role to play here. So there's a lot of stimulus out there at the moment. So we have uh, the SBCI has brought out its range of products, including the Future Growth Loan Scheme, the COVID-19 Working Capital uh, Scheme, um, you have Microfinance Ireland, who've just, I think they've announced a new round of, of funding. You have Enterprise Ireland with their Sustaining Enterprise Fund and also the Micro Sustaining Enterprise Fund for, for loans of up to, or advances of up to 50K. There's a load of supports out there, but you've got to go and get them now um, because don't wait for this problem to come at you because if you're strong now in terms of liquidity and you've done a you've done a cash flow forecast and it looks like you could get into some difficulty in maybe early part of 2021 or the latter part of this year go now and secure the funding that you're 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 forecasting that you're going to need so whatever that key cash requirement is go now and start looking for it because it will take time okay do we know yet in terms of the unemployment rates that spiked, and then we've seen them uh, coming down sharply. Do yeah. we know where they're likely to sit for 2020? Oh, uh, I think, and this is only my own opinion, I think numbers were spoken about of you know 8 9%, even up to 10% unemployment by year end. 
Um, you've got to remember, Carl, that the, the reason a company could avail of the temporary wage supplement was to retain staff. Mm-hmm. So, but we are seeing we are seeing within uh, business plans that are coming in, companies are forecasting redundancies towards the latter end of the year. They are forecasting that as part of their plan. You see, all these things are interconnected. One of the one of the um, topics that we've been talking about quite a bit since the shutdown um, or over the past few months here is the mortgage side, because, you know, we've had people across all levels of the mortgage chain with mortgages in process at, to various extents. And the outlook now is going to directly impact um, on people's ability to be able to, um, to to avail of approval and principles that they had or to proceed um, where they were prior to, to drawdown, but also as to how they'll make a future application over the next 12 months. All of this, we, we don't know how this is going to impact the mortgage market. So, I know again that's something you and I discussed before we came on air. So look, tell me, tell me how you're seeing things in the marketplace at the moment. Okay, so in in in, in a context, I, I'm I'm managing director of SGL, but I'm also managing director of of uh, Sandra Advisors, which is a, a regulated entity, um, and I have a team in there who who are on the mortgage side as well uh, and commercial lending. Um, so in terms of the I think the the residential property market has been quite robust in how it's handled this. Demand is still, there's a pent up demand for housing and that hasn't gone away. Um, so you still have that, you know, that, that mid-market demand for your family home. Um, uh, there's a pent up demand there as well. So that's why the, the residential property market has been resilient through all this. The difficulty I have, Carol, is that, Many of the lenders that are out there are speaking, I won't say what I'm really thinking, they're speaking out of both sides of the mouth. Okay. So you have, from a top level, you have many of the banks and lenders saying, you know what, we're open for business. We are lending. We will uh, we will not take into account the fact that somebody is on the temporary wage supplement. You can have your mortgage. There's no problem. In reality, it's the complete opposite. If you're on the temporary wage supplement, many of the lenders that are out there will not advance even to loan offer, let alone drawdown. They want proof that you are no longer on the temporary wage supplement or the company that you're working for is no longer claiming the temporary wage supplement for you. And John, you know, look, what you're saying is what we've been hearing anecdotally. And yet, when we speak well, to I, the banks, I, I, they are I'll telling go, us something different. Well, Carol, I'll go beyond anecdotally. I have evidence. Because okay. we have we have responses and we have conditions, black and white. So how how is that manifesting? So I mean, is is it in the conditions? What do employees or their employers need to do? The what most of the banks will require is they will require a number two two primary things. So a mortgage is all about two things. It's all about um, uh, your uh, your salary and your capacity to repay. Okay, so you have to demonstrate your capacity to repay a mortgage, and then also you have to show tenure within uh, within your employment. So what they will, what a what a lender will do prior to drawdown or loan offer is they will request two things from you. They'll request your bank statements and they'll request your most recent uh, um, payslip. 
Okay, on on payslips, the temporary wage supplement appears. It has to because it's 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 sent off to revenue, comes back, goes in via the payroll system, and comes out as the temporary wage supplement. That's why most people find that they might be even slightly better off under under the current regime because they're paying a lot less tax. Um, so under under uh, so the lender will look for that. Okay, once they see that the temporary wage supplement is there, they will turn around and say. We can't advance you the mortgage until we have evidence that you're no longer on the temporary wage supplement. Now, that could be if most people are paid at the end of the month, and let's say it's July now, it could be the end of September before you can demonstrate that evidence. That's but so I'm, frustrating for buyers right now. Well, even worse than that, Carol, is you could have people who have an, uh, particularly an AIP, but particularly an exception on an AIP. They have their property, they have their exception, and they just cannot close. It is the most frustrating, uh, and we have a number of clients in that scenario. Yeah, and actually we've gotten a couple of inquiries from people in that position. So they've signed their contracts, they've signed their mortgage paperwork, so they were maybe within within days or within a week of drawdown, and Carol, their circumstances I, changed. I've had a bank manager tell me, that his bank is telling people through their communication channels one thing. And he, he's saying to me, I can tell you that we're not doing that. I won't say who or what bank or whatever, but he was adamant saying, people are coming in here telling me, oh, I heard you're, you're doing X, Y, and Z. And he's saying, it's the opposite. So what's so, the legal position here then? I, sorry, I know that that's an unfair question to ask you, but, you know, is it a case that we're likely, you know, in, in much the same way as the banks have been retrospectively trying to deal with um, their handling of the tracker situation? Is it a situation that that buyers are not going to be able to proceed um, and, and potentially run into contract issues because they've already signed their contracts to, uh, to, to purchase a property um, if they're well, no, held well, accountable? Well, the only thing is, is that the the contract usually will have the mortgage clause in it, mm. um, where for if if for some reason they cannot draw down on their mortgage, uh, it null it, it voids the contract. So mm-hmm. I don't think there's going to be contract issues as such. But are there likely well, to be loss of opportunity issues for people who can't proceed now, and then it's found in twelve months' time or three years' time that they ought to have been allowed? Because they're going, there's going to be opportunity losses from the marketplace and on a particular deal that was struck. Uh, oh, I've got that. It's a, it's a hypothetical uh, question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that will only be answered, I think, in the fullness of time. Uh, yeah. But m- my concern at the moment and my concern for for our clients in particular is that it, this, this, this process is so frustrating, not only from their point of view, from their solicitor's point of view, from our point of view, because they're being told something by the lender and we're telling them the opposite. So yeah, but like all of the, all of the commentary coming out, and again, we've spoken to to most of the main lenders at this stage, and you know they are coming forward with um, certainly solutions or solution-driven approaches here. But if that's not translating into the marketplace and we just don't know that yet and we probably won't know it for a period of months. Um, you know, I, I appreciate that we're into a kind of a whole other realm of issues there. And again, it's going to take a few months till we know what they are. John, before we let you go, you might just um, really give, give some uh, guidance 
to any business owners who are listening in now, you know, again, our audience tends to be across the planning, construction, property and prop tech sectors. But, you know, for people, for business owners now, what can they be doing to safeguard themselves as best as possible over the next six to six to nine months? Well, what I would say to everybody is, is if you haven't done it um, and no matter how uh, complex or simple you want to make it, please do some sort of cash flow forecast for your business over the next nine months. Okay, don't go beyond that because it's impossible to forecast really beyond that. Uh, But for the next nine months, understand how much cash your business is going to require. Um, There's a complacency that may be there, particularly on smaller businesses, um, where the temporary waste supplement may be disguising what the true issues coming down the line may be. If you were to discard that temporary wage supplement at the end of August, where would your business be at the end of December? And plan for that. If it requires some additional funding, uh, go for it now, because my fear is that you will, uh, we have Brexit coming down the line as well, Carol, so we haven't even spoken about that. Uh, and that's a that's at the year end. That seems such a small problem now, doesn't it? Um, it's all but, relative. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have that coming down the line. You're going to have a lot of companies looking for funding, looking for the sports, looking for the stimulus that is coming out. Get your house in order today in terms of the documentation, the forecasts, the cash flows that you're going that every bank is going to ask you for. Every bank is going to ask you for a three year financial forecast for your business. Get that in order now. Okay, John, great advice there, not just for our listeners, but for ourselves as well. You know, it's always the case, get your own house in order first. So thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm sure our audience will too. That was John Power, Managing Director of SGL Corporate Finance. We need to take another quick break and we'll be back shortly. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. I'm now joined over the phone by Niall Newman of KSN Construction Consultants. Niall, thank you so much for joining me today. That's no problem, Carol. So, Niall, first of all, a little bit um, just to to introduce KSN Construction Consultants to anybody um, who might not be familiar with them. Um, How how long has the company been established? Uh, The company was established in 1990, so we're in business about 30 years at this stage. So we're primarily a quantity surveying cost consultancy um, operation, but we also uh, subsequently set up some time ago a project management company. And we also do a lot of work in the energy area for Sustainable Energy Ireland. So the main companies uh, was set up in 1990. I was one of the founding directors with um, David Kerrigan and John Shane, and um, they've now left and departed and retired. So I'm the remaining founding director at this stage. So we have about 70 or 80 quantity surveying people. We've about 40 to 50 project management people and we've about 40 people in the energy department. Very good. Uh, So you've got a nice broad overview of maybe how the impact of the pandemic has been across uh, the sectors in the the construction industry. So what kind of projects are you involved in right now? Uh, all sorts of projects, but primarily our, our core activity is mostly large-scale office developments and large-scale residential developments. We do work for the Department of Education as well and sort of primary care units and so on. But primarily the big projects we're involved with would be large-scale office developments and residential developments. 
Okay, so were you? Did you have any essential works that had to continue during the shutdown? Uh, we did. We actually got involved out in City West, where they had a step down facility that was sort of emergency works, where they, the Department of Health, I think, took space out there from the hotel and used it as a sort of a step down facility for, um, you know, when they had to, if and when they had to move people out of hospitals to free up bed spaces in the core hospitals. So we were involved in that project, and that was obviously an essential service. Okay, that was a, uh, actually, I remember reading about that. That was a rapid build, a rapid delivery project. Yes. So was that, was that actually um, traditional build or modular? I think it was sort of a modular setup. It was just it was just bed spaces like you've probably seen in the UK where they set up effectively dormitories and whatnot. I wasn't overly involved in it myself, but it was mm-hmm. just sort of a, a modular rapid build sort of a thing, you know. OK, and so like given the the scale and the size of the company there and the number of people on your team, you know, how did the pandemic impact on your own business? Well, obviously, we had we actually closed the, the doors of the offices uh, in advance of Leo Varadkar's sort of closure date. What I think it was the twenty seventh of March. So we we took the opportunity to send people home a number of days before that because I think people were getting uncomfortable and there was a lot of uncertainty from a health and safety point of view. So we closed the office and we invested in IT and so on, more IT, so we could all work remotely. So effectively, everybody left the office, we closed down and we all went home and worked remotely, which actually worked quite successfully during, let's say, the lockdown period and that, you know. We were we were lucky uh, compared to other businesses and industries where we could do a lot of work remotely and it worked quite well doing meetings on Microsoft Teams and Zoom calls and all the rest of it. And that's still continuing at this stage. Um, at the moment, some of us are back in the office. Um, so mm-hmm. we, we're working on a sort of a tag team arrangement where some people come in one week, other teams come in the other week and so on, just to make sure we have all the health and safety protocols in place, you know, and, and the distancing, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, but, but you didn't have that in place prior to the pandemic? No, so we effectively just closed the office, and, and now when we came back after the after the shutdown, we put together, we brought in a health and safety consultants, and they told us what we should do, what we shouldn't do. We've hand sanitizers and temperature controls and all the usual stuff. So, like everywhere else, you know. So, and then the high risk people were sent home, and they're still at home because if they've diabetes or something like that, or their their, their wife or partner might be in the medical business in in the front line, you know. Okay, and now one of the things that one of the very strong themes that we've seen was that, um, you know, while activity might have stopped on site uh, for for a period of months, um, it didn't slow down. I suppose the the business development work, the tendering or retendering, adjusting plans, things like that. So, in terms of capacity, were you were all of your teams still working at full capacity during the shutdown? Yeah, very much so. So, like, it was effectively, as you know, a seven-week shutdown. So it was an opportunity for design teams, architects, engineers, clients, etc., to catch up, for want of a better word, on paperwork and optioneering and final accounts and variations and processing various different elements. So, you know, coordination of mechanical and electrical installations and so, so on. So typically on a project, we would have site meetings, as you can imagine, on a fortnightly basis and maybe um, design team meetings on the opposite week. So all of those meetings uh, continued uh, remotely. And we we found on most projects that we caught up on all the paperwork and so on with the contractors and subcontractors and so on. So it was full on, to be honest, you know. 
Yeah, what did you think of the the latest um, figures where it's suggesting that um, Ireland might actually be the worst impacted of all the the construction industries across the EU, that in terms of productivity losses arising from the pandemic, Ireland might actually be one of the the worst impacted, you know, with with productivity losses for 2020 projected to be somewhere between 30 and 40 percent. Does that tally with what you're experiencing on the ground? No. Um, Our experience, obviously, there was the seven week lockdown and so on. Um, what happened then in our experience was that st- sites recommenced and in certain cases there was, um, you know, Eastern European workers in, in certain trades that were maybe critical to the critical parts of the project and they were slow to get back to site. So obviously week, week one after the lockdown, it wasn't 100% productivity or 100% manpower on the site, but speaking to some of the larger contractors, certainly they were up to 90% within a week or two. So we, you know, and it does depend on the, the particular site. Obviously, if you're in a big open basement or building a runway in Dublin Airport or something, that it's a very easy, well, an easier site to manage from a protocol's point of view because it's unlike, for example, you know, a fit out of an office where everyone's in an enclosed space and there's lots and lots of contractors trying to do um, work on top of each other in a very, you know, claustrophobic sort of situation and it's very hard to manage from a health and safety protocol point of view whereas if you have say a large basement for argument's sake people are out in the open air and it's much more manageable and I think the productivity is better so a lot of a lot of our projects at the moment are outside their projects coming out of the ground as it so happens so there's less challenge so productivity okay. better you know so, yeah, that's that's interesting, though, because, again, with this phased, um, you know, I, I think the industry was preparing through the CIF um, and other bodies, the industry was preparing for, you know, kind of a slower phased return to activity. And yet what we've seen is that there was such a major push to try regain momentum on sites, whether that was maybe uh, whether that was incorporating kind of a redesign or incorporating um, an offsite or modular element or whether it was just uh, working in two shifts, because obviously the construction hours, um, discretion around construction hours allowed people to do that. So it's really heartening, actually, to hear that, you know, on on larger sites, they're they're getting back to kind of 90 percent capacity. You know, but is that, you know, is that reflective of the majority of sites, do you think? Certainly in our experience, I mean, it's it, it, sort of a twofold situation. It's the productivity on on site at the moment. And then there's other projects. We've had experience where other projects are now shelved because of the COVID thing. And that's a combination of, you know, particularly some retail projects we have are now stopped or maybe a couple of hotel projects. And it's probably like... Uh, our expectation is that it's, you know, a funding issue and a nervousness around funding. Obviously, without funding, you can't get a project off the ground with the best will in the world. So funding is on certain projects is maybe stopped or slowed down. So I think it's a funding nervousness, which we probably had a bit of that around Brexit. Now we have some of that around COVID-19 as well, you know. But obviously, yeah. 
we we've lots of projects where they are funded they have a tenant they are let they're banked so it's business as usual to get on with the job and get the jobs built and get the offices um you know um, complete and occupied etc so we're lucky that we have quite a number of larger projects that are of that ilk and they, they will just now continue obviously there will be a delay at the back end of certain projects where you know the seven week delay and maybe a little bit of delay before the seven weeks a little bit of delay after the seven weeks will manifest itself and there's obviously going to be a negotiation around all of that as well Okay, well, like, okay, there's a couple of different things there. There's a couple of different issues arising from that. So first of all, on uh, projects that are stalled, are they likely to be stalled temporarily? Or do you think that it's a case of going back to the drawing board and, and making a development decision as to whether they proceed? One project in particular, uh, it's probably stalled because of their cost and their design as well as much as the COVID uh, impact. Other projects we have, that's a sort of a retail type project. Other smaller retail projects we have look as if they're just stalled at the moment because of the COVID-19 thing, you know. Okay, are we in danger of making long-term decisions based on a very short-term situation? Um, I'd say it's a wait and see situation like that. That's the decision of those developers at the moment, this week, last week, next week, next month. I'd say, it's, you know, people need to see how this COVID business unwinds. Um, at the moment, there's more uncertainty than anyone would like because of what we're experiencing. I think rightly or wrongly, everyone thought we'd be well through the, the, the process at this stage, and that's now not the case. So the, the nervousness continues. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. Our Our previous guest just reminded us that while we're caught up, trying to tackle the uncertainty caused by the pandemic that actually we still have Brexit looming um, at, at the end of the year that we still don't know what the likely impact of, of that is going to be. So I, I suppose back to the things that maybe we have we have greater sight of in terms of the office blocks that you're working on at the moment, are you seeing an element of redesign being incorporated there as a result of um, the COVID-19 safety measures, um, including social distancing? No, not really. No. Um, I mean, what, what you can see, it's not so much the office block itself, but maybe the, the, the layout and the set out of, of the people within that, e.g. the fit out of the office block. Um, we're, we're looking at situations where people are remodeling layouts and so on to give more social distancing in the medium term. We have a project, for example, where there's a temporary fit out where people are going to decant out of an existing office uh, temporarily where they alter and extend and revamp their existing office. It's a large project and they have to move into temporary accommodation and that temporary accommodation could fit previously, say, 200 people. Now with the new distancing, it only fits 100 people or 120 people. So in that situation, uh, the, 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 the planning layout of the office is being completely remodeled for a better fit because of what we have in front of us. Yeah, and that's that's something that we're seeing um, we're we're seeing across the board now when we speak to federal company or to to uh, office occupiers. And mm. um, one of the other things you touched on there, which um, it almost feels a little bit early to discuss, but I'm interested to hear what kind of experiences you're seeing on the ground in terms of contract renegotiations, because you know obviously there have been 
changes, there's been productivity losses, there's been changes to the delivery program and to the, to the project um, build times and yeah. costs. Do we know how that's working out so far um, yeah. in terms of contract disputes? Yeah, it's very, very varied. Some people are qu- quite uh, willing to work with us on and our clients in that regard. Other people are a bit more aggressive. Not too many, but some people have been quite aggressive with claims and so on. So we see it as a, sort of a twofold situation. The initial seven weeks of lockdown. So that's that's a very defined period where you can get in under the bonnet with the contractors and try and agree, uh, let's call it the standing cost that may or may not arise depending on the contract. And that, again, depends on whether it's a public or a private contract. And um, Every contract is pretty well different these days. And then there's the let's call it the protocols beyond the seven-week lockdown for every project to put in place now for the social distancing, etc. from, let's say, the 18th of May when we went back to work to the end of the project. So it's a sort of a twofold situation. So, um, like, we've we've agreed in certain contracts uh, the amount of money that we've mutually agreed with some contractors, the amount of money for the seven weeks uh, on some jobs. On other jobs, we're in this negotiations let's say in that regard and we haven't concluded them and, and we're now seeing the claims for the balance of the project as well so, so that they are now coming onto our desk for negotiation and agreement you know so okay. we're visibility on all of that uh, and it does vary a lot from project to project again it depends you know to exaggerate if you were fitting out a basement nightclub in Temple Bar for 14 weeks. It's a very difficult thing to sort of manage from a distancing point of view compared to a civil engineering project like a road or something, you know. So every job is different and there isn't one size fits all or anything. Yeah, and I would imagine actually the attitude of the parties plays a big part and also the flexibility that they have um, within the bounds of their own funding and their own timelines. Um, Yes. do we do we know yet? Because obviously we're at the stage now where um, we're still looking to find mutual agreement where yeah. there, where there's disagreement um, and then likely mediation. But in terms of legal advices, do we know? Do do is there any legal certainty around the the contract position here? Yeah, well, we have legal advice. I can just pick a contract without naming it. Where yeah. It's, contract so it's not it, it's an amended RII contract for argument's sake so we've very clear advice from the legal people as to what out of that seven weeks what how many weeks the entitlement will run for and on what basis it should be calculated for want of a better word you know so we have we have good legal advice on that but it, it, you know the beyond the 18th of May the jury's out a little bit on the entitlements and so on you know but I think contractors effectively understand and know if you have a project let's say it's 100 million that there is funding in place for that project to the tune of 100 million there isn't a a, a limitless fund for the COVID problem so I think contractors in my view are of the understanding as design teams possibly are and clients that everybody has to share a bit of pain in this it isn't a one-way street and there isn't um, sort of an unlimited fund to fund all of this so I think it's important that contractors mitigate their costs as best they can and come to the table with plausible uh, proposals etc that are manageable and can be negotiated and agreed rather than um, you know longer wider bigger claims 
Yeah, look, that sounds infinitely sensible. Um, And obviously you would hope that people will be, but that might not be the case and they might not even be in a position to be. So actually, I am. And as I said before, even brought up this point, it's really early days for this. But actually, it would be great maybe if we could have a chat again in a few months time to see how that's rolling out. Um, Because I think, again, it's early days, but it's such an important one. I think it's going to have a huge impact on uh, output and delivery performance as we go into 2021. Um, But we'll leave it there for now. That was Niall Newman of KSN Construction Consultants. My thanks again for joining us today. That's it from us today on Property Matters. Thank you for listening in. Uh, You can get in touch with the show on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or you can email us at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on Sound and show producer Katie Tallon of Hear Me Roar Media. We're back at the same time next week. From myself, Carol Tallon, and all the team here, stay safe.